Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, July the 30th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, August the 2nd, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We want to remind you that this is the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act, and we here at Co-op Radio are celebrating ADA all month long. Please join us. At koop.org, many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 67th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is part two of a series on Cuba-U.S. relations and addresses the context, history of Cuban-U.S. relations in order to better interpret the unfolding events that are being presented and largely misrepresented by our media and by our president, Joe Biden, and his administration. Enjoy. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Friday, July the 30th, 2021. We are pre-recording a show to be broadcast on KOOP on Monday, August the 2nd, 2021, from 6 to 7 p.m., Last week, we kicked off our show with Jane Franklin on Cuba and U.S. relations. This week, I have the great pleasure of inviting a friend and a fellow DJ here at Co-op Radio. TJ Masters, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you for having me, Pedro. I'm a big fan. Well, I do think before we get started, I I wanted to ask you to talk about your show on Thursdays from 4.30 to 6 p.m. each Thursday. Tell us a little bit what what you do over the airwaves with Co-op Radio. Sure, I'll do a quick little plug. My show is called Small Cool World. It airs every Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 6 p.m. It is an eclectic music show. I bring music from all over the world and from all eras and try to kind of spin it into a cohesive playlist every week. And uh, I also take calls on the air and kind of hold a space to have good vibes and good conversations with the community. Outstanding. I'm also... Uh, TJ is our technical lead at Co-op Radio, so when anything goes wrong, if it can get fixed, <laughs> TJ is the if person. If you can get to, a hold of me. Right. Anyhow, I just really appreciate what you do for Co-op Radio, and I really do also appreciate our discussions that we've had over the years, and I just thought it was a good opportunity to have you on. I think that the point of all radio, and at least this show, 
is to provide good information, but also the information being provided should be in concert with the needs of the listener. And so sometimes we forget, feel like I lose touch with what people really want to know more about. And so I thought you as a millennial and very well-educated individual and got a good human rights heart would be an excellent choice to lead this Q&A and discussion. One other thing I wanted to mention to our listeners is that TJ did listen to the show last week, so he is familiar with some of the ground we covered last week. So these two shows together, I think, will provide, hopefully, some valuable insights into perceptions that uh, folks may or may not have about U.S.-Cuba relations. So thank you, TJ. Turn it over to you. Yeah, thank you for the generous introduction. Like I said, I have always loved this show. I love the commitment to alternate viewpoints, challenging mainstream narratives, things that we take for granted. And so I appreciate the opportunity to come on and kind of ask some normal questions maybe and and have a conversation about some current events that is not necessarily United States-centric, even though the United States is pretty heavily implicated in the story here. What I wanted to start with, I thought would be great, even for people that may have heard last week's episode, is just in the spirit of challenging the mainstream narrative, I thought it might be fun if the two of us, just as normal citizens, could try to come up with a narrative, a storyline, like what is happening in Cuba right now, and how can we tell that story in the most kind of transparent and non-political or unbiased way, just to give context for the discussion that we're about to get into. So my understanding is that a good number of citizens are holding anti-government protests in Cuba, and a number of them are being detained uh, or or imprisoned um, by the current government. And I was kind of following the news last week when they they had trotted out Raul Castro to make an appearance, and the impression that I got, Pedro, and you can tell me if this is a good impression or a bad impression, was that the government of Cuba was trying to present a kind of united revolutionary front, which is to say the people that are in power now have direct ties to the revolution in the middle of the last century and are united in that style of governing. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, I, I'm not specifically aware of what Raul said. He has a big influence in Cuba, even though he's no longer the, the lead. DA's right. Canal is now the president, and they've changed that some years ago. I do think it is important that The main point that I think from the Cuban perspective, at least the Cuban government perspective and people that I'm connected to, is the sovereignty of a nation to make its own choices and to be allowed to make its own mistakes and to move forward in whatever way they feel is appropriate. And I think that was a large part of that solidarity. I think getting to your question in a non-political way, let's be very clear the Cuban economy has collapsed in many ways. It's a confluence of a number of of indicators. The COVID virus has jumped up to higher levels there than it's been ever since it started. In President Biden's July 12th statement, he creates the image that the Cuban government is mismanaging the COVID situation by suggesting Cuba needs relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic. It seems like Biden should be more focused on the U.S.'s failure from the relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic. In that, according to the worldometer.com coronavirus site on July 
the 30th, 2021, the rate of death from COVID in Cuba is one of the lowest in the hemisphere at 238 per 1 million people, while the United States is 1,889 per million people, a rate eight times higher. Regardless of Cuba's proactive management of COVID, still, this collapse of the economy is certainly conditioned a lot by the fact with with COVID, there's been a big drop in tourism to Cuba, which is a huge amount of foreign exchange. So it's like a perfect storm. Cuba's gone through these things before. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it was getting 80% of its imports from the Soviet Union. And, and I think some people mistakenly think that by choice, Cuba wanted 80% of their imports from the Soviet Union. But in fact, in 1959, following the revolution, Fidel Castro and the Cubans came to Washington to seek a real relationship. And they were basically swatted away. And so I think that's what I would like to talk a little bit about. A, a common thread is that the appearance of what goes on sometimes is different than what's really going on. To that, to that yeah. point, mm-hmm. I, I saw an article in Al Jazeera just today that said that the Cuban president had said today or yesterday that the narrative that was being spun about the protests in Cuba was incorrect on an international level, kind of mischaracterized in his words. I think what they're referring to, TJ, is right now in Colombia, you have over 45 deaths. You have death squads. You have incredible repression in Colombia. And there's not a mention of that reality. It's almost like Cuba is brought into and looked at under this microscope. And you ask the question, are there people protesting? Yes. There's thousands of them in a number of different cities. And some of them protesting for the simple reasons that we all protest. Long, sure. long lines and, you know, to get food and, 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 and these types of things. But what's left out of all the Western coverage of the dire straits in Cuba is the impact that the embargo has had. Now, people argue, well, every, okay. you know, everyone blames everything on the, on the embargo. And I, and I think that's unfair, too, because there are other factors as well. Well, that's where my my next question is going to lead us. So there are protests happening in Cuba. Apparently, or according to news reports, people are being detained by the Cuban government. Mm -hmm. And the United States responds to that. Joe Biden yesterday saying that, quoting here, the United States will continue to sanction individuals responsible for the oppression of the Cuban people, end quote. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So he announced some sanctions against who? Not the country of Cuba, against an individual. And what does that even mean, to sanction an individual? Well, I think if you look at it from the perspective of image-making, of what the American public is being encouraged to believe, that's really, I think, what's connected here. Now, Biden also said just last week that there were members of the Cuban government that were enriching themselves, yet no evidence provided. And, And this same type of accusation was made against Fidel back by Forbes magazine back in, I think, 2004, where they said that here's a guy that is like the fourth or fifth or top 10, I forget the number, richest person, you know, because of all these bank accounts he has and monies. And and Fidel, this is 2004, right? So this is after, what, 44 years of trying to get rid of Fidel. He just said, look, you find one bank account that I have 
and any one dollar that that I've stolen or, or, or misappropriated, I will resign. He made that as a public statement, and so and I think the same thing should be asked of of, of Biden if he's saying. Cubans are lining their own pockets because they are, which he did, he actually used that language at the end of his July 12th statement that I don't have right in front of me, but I'll try to get to it before the show's over. And and, and so again, you can say anything, words can come out of anybody's mouth. You know, the, re, sure. the, the truth of them is another matter. And so I would suggest that that the evidence and the proof of that kind of corruption going on in the Cuban government by our president saying that should be brought straight out front and center and and people should pay uh, pay a price for that if that's what they've done uh there's no there's, there's no doubt about that right but those are some of the misrepresentations you know there's others that sure we'll probably get to some of them but I, you know i remember f- for me probably if i was to go through some of that type of false image making there's a, there was a whole deal about the u.s allegedly had their businesses nationalized without proper compensation and that's what provoked the embargo okay i think that's a pretty well understood assumption but it's just not really based in truth because under international law there are countries that nationalize uh, businesses throughout history and the uh, national nationalizations that affected property held by Cubans and foreigners alike, the uh, nationalism of the U.S. property began in 1960 under a law that they passed that was enacted in, in July of that year and, and in response to continuous attacks on, on the Cuban economic targets and the domination of all their basic economic sectors by foreign interests. Now, Cuba went ahead and settled compensation agreements for all property nationalized legislatively since 1959 with all nations except the United States. They did it with Spain in 88. They did it with Switzerland in 62. They did it with France in 67, Canada, 1980, Italy, Mexico, the United Kingdom, all reached agreements. Now, it takes two to reach an agreement. If your position is we will absolutely not reach an agreement so that we can then say that Cuba just took our property without any compensation, then that's, that's the, the image the American public gets from this leaving out these facts that we're going over right now. The United States, I mean, since World War II, the United States has negotiated some 10 lump sum agreements and settlements of claims arising from nationalization in other countries and such. So this is not a, a, a something that's that's an absolute exceptional situation where we've had our corporations lose their, their interests without compensation. I, I know that's not exactly speaking to what you just asked, but I think that's important. Yeah, well, no, I, I, I do want to bring it back to my question uh, about the most recent round of sanctions because it does seem to me like somewhat of a toothless gesture. How do you sanction an individual, first of all, and how do you say that you know the United States will continue to sanction individuals responsible for the oppression of the Cuban people? Sanctions, to my mind, only ever hurt people. They don't ever help the people who are underneath the governments being sanctioned. You know what I mean? It's only, it only continues to cut off resources. It continues to cut off relationships, which ultimately lead to things like protests. Right. Well... And I think what you're what you're speaking to, we we've talked about that on this show because the United States 
right now is sanctioning close to one-third of the population of the world in multiple sanctions. Look, the only sanctions that are legal are from the U.N., and these are unilateral sanctions that the United States mainly is involved with. Western nations will join in. And But to your point, absolutely what sanctions do is they hurt the majority population in, in, in Iraq. Those sanctions in Iraq led to the, you know, the deaths of close to 500,000 children. Uh, the water got contaminated. They sanctioned. They embargoed. They wouldn't let chlorinators come into that country and other basic sanitation type stuff, which is an absolute war crime. In, in Syria right now, uh, we have sanctions. Same type of, same type of uh, issue goes on from, from, uh, from country to country to country. It's interesting that the countries we sanction are not countries like uh, Saudi or Arabia, which has the worst human rights record in the world. So, Indeed. Yeah, so again, this image-making is created. It's created and it, it provides cover. They are masters as to manipulating public opinion in different directions based on a media that we were just started the show off, you know, questioning its loyalty. Is it to, is it to the American public or is it to big money interests? Um, right, it, and, and it, does, it does beg the question of what exactly is the point of repressing, intentionally repressing the development of uh, specific countries around the world. You know, mm-hmm. I was thinking about it earlier today as somewhat ironic, especially given the, <laughs> given the great state of Texas in which the both of us live, Pedro. You know, there are people, there are elected officials in this country and especially in this state who would make free market capitalism a core tenet of democracy. Mm-hmm. And so these are the same people that would say that they believe the United States should have a democratic influence on the world, but then they would cut off certain countries from the free market. Well, <laughs> can these people put their money where their mouth is, literally? And I think the American public is, a, and we've said this on the show many, many times, because it's, it's basically a premise we are good people. Uh, if we know what's up and what's down, you know, we will hold those accountable that are betraying our trust. And increasingly in this country, when you compare it to the other countries of the OECD, the Organization of Economic Development Nations, some 35 nations, we have the highest wealth inequality. And where does that wealth come from? I mean, what you hear if you turn on talk radio, it, you know, it, is we're not supposed to teach anything about the history of slavery and other forms of oppression that led through colonialism and neocolonialism to this incredible wealth disparity that, that continues today. And, right. and when you have a country that puts the majority population interests in front of the material interests of a minority, that country is now going to be on the hit list of the, uh, of the U.S. It's going to be an access of, of uh, e- what, what did Bush say, evil or whatever. But, but now, now it's, there's a troika of tyranny. They picked out Nicaragua, you know, <laughs> Venezuela, and Cuba, you know, like as the three nations. It turns out that when you look at, you know, life expectancy and basic human, human right issues, these are the countries, particularly Cuba, that, that, that exceed and excel. Abraham Maslow put together 
the priority of needs. What do you call it? The hierarchy. The hierarchy. Right. Yeah. And what is the hierarchy? What's the first one? Physiological and safety needs. Right. That that's food, food, a place to sleep, a, a roof over your head. You know, right. protection from preventable diseases. You can't do anything in life if that's not there first. But we don't focus on that. Instead, we politicize human rights and misrepresent facts on the ground in order to serve the interests of marketing a U.S. foreign policy of aggression and aggrandizement. However, it is a small elite subclass of well-connected financial beneficiaries that get aggrandized not the majority U.S. public, by such wars and interventions. Meanwhile, terms such as humanitarian intervention are falsely marketed by our government and compliant mainstream media to create false image-making that we are promoting democracy by removing dictators. Are Libyans better off after our 2011 humanitarian intervention there? Are Syrians better off after our humanitarian intervention there? Are Iraqis better off after our humanitarian intervention there in 2003? Is Honduras post-coup 2009 or Haiti or Venezuela or Cubans better off after our humanitarian-driven interventions and policies there? No, it can be empirically shown, and we have, that we are on the wrong side time and time again of what turns out to be in the best interests of the majority populations of those countries we intervene in. We have participated in a history that is documentable of these terrorist kinds of activities, mainly from Florida, but since 1959, more than 3,000 Cubans have died as a result of these terrorist attacks and biological attacks. Yet, are we on a terrorist list? No. But we put Cuba on a terrorist list, a country that has never reciprocated with an unprincipled behavior such as terrorism that has taken a single human life in the U.S. It's like, it's like in a state of war. Perpetual war. Cuba reacts like any country would. And the result is more invasions of personal privacy that you would expect if you were trying to protect yourself from such aggressions. But this context is not shared with the American public. When you have a state of war, rights get restricted. Sure. Then you get blamed for restricting rights. Well, who's creating the war situation to begin with, whether it's the embargo or whether it's these terrorist acts that I'd like to play for you a little bit later from my guest last week from her book, Jane Franklin, The Chronology of U.S.-Cuban Relations Since 1959. So to get back to the main issue is our foreign policy is based on something. We're told it's based on bringing democracy to the world. But my studies have shown that time and time again, the people that we support, um, whether it's in Bolivia, Ecuador, Libya, right. uh, Iraq. Pretty bad track record. Yeah, why are the majority population worse off in every scenario? In other words, it's not an aberration. It's a consistent pattern. So Absolutely. So raises eyebrows. All right. Okay, Pedro. So let's talk about, with Cuba specifically, what are some of the human rights issues that tend to crop up when America exercises its undue influence in trying to export American democracy. I imagine the kind of human rights issues that Cubans deal with are probably similar to what Iraqis have dealt with, to what Iranians have had to deal with, perhaps even North Koreans. But where, where is Cuba on human rights? Yeah, one of the most important indices of human rights, I think, is like infant mortality, under age five mortality, Okay. Of course, infant mortality is what? The number of deaths per 1,000 live births. Okay, that's how they measure it. 
under age five mortality is is the same thing but for those under age five zero to five so it extends through the infant mortality range up to age five and we all know what life expectancy rates are the reason these are important rates is because they involve a combination of a number of social and economic factors such as health care nutrition education sanitation housing employment uh, and so they're not just a standalone indice they reflect the the substructure of, of the society and it's interesting I did a presentation back in 2011 after my I don't know my sixth or seventh visit to Cuba and the UNICEF from the state of the world's children 2011 basic indicators what you can do is you can look at the infant mortality rates back there and then in Cuba were close to four per 1,000 live births which was significantly less than the United States which was about seven at mm. that time and the developing nations it's the average is like 47 okay so what I did and anybody can do this actually I looked at Latin America and the Caribbean as well. Their rates were 19 per 1,000 live births. And you can look at the number, the total number of annual births each year in these countries and in these regions, which they document, and which I did. And you can extrapolate from that empirical information the following. And you can say, well, what if all of Latin America and the Caribbean in the year of 2009 had the same infant mortality rates that Cuba did. And it would have resulted in uh, over 150,000 lives would have been saved, okay? A baby is being saved, 159,000. And for the developing countries, which is the whole world, right, of developing nations, which had a total, the average is like 47. It was over 5 million. You know, so these really matter. And, and this is what Fidel Castro used to talk about these basic types of indices. So if Cuba can do what it does, it really means any country can do it, right? Yeah. And Cuba does it under this auspices of this embargo. So if you were to take Cuba, this poor country, and we've already said how economically, I mean, they're, they're getting power outages now. They're, I mean, there's all sorts of bad things happening down there. But at the same time, the, if you look at what they invest into healthcare as a percent of GDP, it, it's extraordinary. And that's why, it's part of the reason, but also what they do that results in these, these impacts. But I guess what I'm, what I'm really trying to get at is the kind of life and death type of issue here. And with education, for instance, in 1999, these were statistics from the World Bank in 2001, right? So this is 40 years after the revolution. It was 6.7% of the gross national income was spent on education in Cuba. That's twice the rate of public spending as compared to Latin America, Caribbean, and even the Singapore average. But in, in 1999, Latin America and the Caribbean, the average literacy rate for youth, 15 to 24, was 7%, while Cuba, it was 0%. Uruguay was 1%. In 1997, the Latin American and, and East Asian average ratio of primary school pupils per teacher, okay? How many kids are in each schoolroom? Latin America and East Asia, the teacher to student ratio was 25 to 1. In Cuba, it was 12 to 1. Only Sweden ranked as high. And again, these are World Bank statistics in 2001. Just the last thing about education was the UNESCO, they had a report and they were just stunned. They had to redo their testing 
because they found that Cuba, although one of the poorest countries in Latin America, showed the best results in basic education by a long shot, scoring 350 points, around 90% correct answers. Cuba's 100 points ahead of the regional average, including countries like Argentina, Chile, and Brazil, Hmm. with scores close to 250. But TJ, uh, please hold on while we take a break for a pause for the cause. We'll be back right after this. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin.